Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Part 2. Early Republics. Chapter 4. Liftoff in Antiquity, Greece and Rome. In April 480 BC, the mighty Persian Empire invaded Greece. It was an extraordinary unequal contest, or so it should have been. Persia was not so much a superpower as a hyperpower. Her empire stretched from the Indus to the Aegean. Her emperor, Xerxes, commanded a vast pool of manpower, making her invasion force one of the largest ancient armies ever assembled. And against her? The Greeks had no capital or unified authority. They could field only a fraction of the number of soldiers in the field, drawn from a mosaic of small city-states and statelets, the loyalty of which was never guaranteed. Not even Athens was able to impose a unified command. For the Greeks, the situation that spring must have seemed hopeless. For the Persians, their victory would have looked inevitable. Yet against almost unbelievable odds, the Greeks blunted the Persian onslaught. Then they defeated the invaders, first at sea at Salamis, and then on land at Platena, and the Persians retreated. 150 years later, the tables had turned completely. Under Alexander, the Greeks not only conquered Persia, but took Egypt, most of the Middle East and Central Asia, as far as India, too. The Greek achievement was not principally a matter of military conquest, however. In the century or so between driving the Persians from Greece and Alexander overrunning their empire, Greek culture flourished. The eastern end of the Mediterranean became, in a way, a Greek lake, her shores surrounded by cities with Greek-speaking communities, Greek culture, Greek learning and trade. Alexander might have surged beyond the boundaries of Greece, conquering all before him, but what was far more durable than Alexander's fleeting empire was the way that Greek culture and ideas took root far from Greece and flourished for centuries. Greek culture was perhaps the predominant way of life for many around the eastern Mediterranean for over a thousand years until the Islamic conquests of until the Islamic conquests after the age of antiquity. Byzantium, which lingered on until the Middle Ages, did so as a Greek empire more than as a Roman one. In everything from art to architecture to philosophy and the way that people thought, ancient Greece achieved the most extraordinary cultural innovations. The Parthenon is to this day regarded as one of the architectural pinnacles of humankind. Athenian philosophers laid the foundations for what we now think of as Western thought. So much for the idea that there were only centuries of stagnation until the early modern era. But what about economic as opposed to cultural and artistic achievement? Behind this aesthetic liftoff, might the economy of ancient Greece have been expanding as well? Direct data about the performance of the Greek economy is almost non-existent, but there is evidence that hints at a significant expansion in wealth in the 4th and 5th centuries BC, material progress alongside all of those other kinds. The population of ancient Greece increased three to five-fold between 800 BC and 300 BC. Greece went from having a population density of about 
3 to 5 people per square kilometer to 12 to 15. Not only did the population increase over this period, without the normal Malthusian constraints kicking in, at the same time, living standards actually increased. To be sure, historians today have little insight into the rates of Greek rent or Greek taxes. But using guesstimates about what Greek city-states spent waging wars, and using what we know about the number of free citizens, it's been estimated that there was an annual growth over a period of three or four centuries of between 0.01 and 0.07%. By the standards of today, such a per capita increase might seem extraordinarily low. Even if we set such growth rates against those in early modern Europe, it's not much. But at the time, it was perhaps without precedent. The archaeological record reinforces the idea of something exceptional happening, with steadily rising living standards and higher life expectancy. Houses got bigger and farms more extensive. Skeletal and dental remains suggest that people were in better health and that diets improved. Athens under Pericles, 461 BC to 429 BC, was one of those rare and exceptional places where output increased faster than the population grew, making people on average much richer, or at least better fed. By the time that the Peloponnesian War broke out in 431 BC, Athens enjoyed a per capita level of consumption similar to the level in Rome under Augustus, 27 BC to 14 AD. In antiquity, the Roman Republic seems to have been the only other society to enjoy an increase in output that exceeded population growth. Rome. At about the same time that the Greeks faced their Persian foe, in 496 BC, on another Mediterranean peninsula, Italy, a small, unexceptional town was also locked in a deadly struggle against her larger neighbours, the Latin League. Outnumbered and betrayed by her former king, Lucius Tarquinus Superbus, Rome's army met her enemy on the shores of Lake Regulus and crushed them. The battle marked a key moment in Rome's rise. She went on to gain mastery over not just the Latin tribes of central Italy, but the whole Italian peninsula, and in time a stretch of territory extending from Britain in the west to Iraq and Egypt in the even by today's standards, with jet travel and email, that's a mind-bogglingly vast territory for one city in Italy to control. But there was much more to the Roman achievement than campaigns and conquest. Ask any 19th century historian to account for the predominance of Prussia in forging a unified Germany, and they'll soon explain that Prussia prevailed not merely because of military victories, blood and iron, but economic takeoff, coal and iron. Talk to a foreign policy expert about America in the world today, and they'll soon make the connection between the US as a military power and her economic strength that underlies it. So why don't accounts of the rise of Rome focus on the economic ascendancy of the city-state from the 3rd century BC? Partly there's just not a lot of economic data. We know how much steel was being produced in 19th century Germany or mid-20th century America, but we can't be so sure of the productive output of ancient Rome. 
We do, however, know enough to be certain that the Roman Republic achieved that rarest of things, output increasing faster than the population grew. Between 300 BC and 14 AD, the population of Italy approximately doubled, from 4 million to about 7 million. If the Roman Republic had been stuck in a Malthusian trap, like most societies on the planet, output would have increased only in line with the population. But it didn't. Well, the population of Italy almost doubled over that time. Total output almost quadrupled, meaning that wealth per person was twice as high. Economic historian Angus Madison, with a precision that perhaps the data doesn't entirely justify, estimates that annual output per capita in Italy grew from the equivalent of US dollars 425 in 300 BC to US dollars 857 by 14 AD. This might not seem like a terribly impressive increase by today's standards. Average income per capita in Italy today is US dollars 25,000 a year. But by historical standards, the level of intensive economic growth that Rome achieved was without precedent. Romans lived well, writes Peter Temin in the Roman market economy, better than any large group before the Industrial Revolution, he goes on. There might not be much hard evidence of economic output, but a pretty big clue as to what was going on has been found buried deep in the ice sheet in Greenland. Whenever humans smelt metal, especially tin, lead and silver, tiny microscopic amounts escape into the atmosphere. They're then blown far away, eventually settling back down on Earth. Now, some of these particles happened to land during a snowfall in Greenland all those years ago. And there they remained trapped in the ice for millennia, concealed beneath countless later layers of snow. When scientists drilled down into the ice sheet a few years ago, they found something remarkable and unexpected. The tiny traces of metal particles increased dramatically during the 1st, 2nd and 3rd centuries BC. Clear evidence of increased human, Roman, industrial activity. Italy's wealth in the 1st and 2nd century BC rose not as a consequence of conquest or booty, but thanks to higher productivity, more output per person. So what was it that made the Greeks and the Romans so successful? At the time, many Greeks and Romans did what humans have so often done and ascribed their wins to divine favour. Athens was uniquely blessed by Athena, they thought. Rome's victory over the Latin League was apparently due to the intervention of their gods, Pluxus and Castor, who had appeared during the decisive moment in the battle beside Lake Regulus. In gratitude, a temple was built for them in the Forum. But it's not just the Romans who saw their success as a consequence of divine favour. This has been a remarkably persistent idea throughout history. Two and a half thousand years on, Victorian naturalist William Buckland was arguing that the enormous seams of coal that fueled England's Industrial Revolution were a sign of divine favour. In 19th century America, it was commonplace for politicians to talk of divine providence during the Republic towards its manifest destiny. 
Divine determinism might have fallen out of favour more recently, but it's not the only kind of determinism on offer. Running through Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, for example, is a strong streak of what you might call ecological determinism. Agriculture arose in certain parts of the world, he informs us, because that is where the kinds of species of plants and animals that could be domesticated happen to live. Those few species suitable for domestication lived in particular places, and those are the places where the agricultural revolution occurred, he writes. We know that domestication through selective breeding changes the characteristics of crops and animals. Grain husks become less fibrous, chickens lay more eggs, animals become less aggressive. With the species we domesticated, so domesticated because they were in some way suitable for farming, or did they come to seem more suitable for farming through domestication? The determinists don't say. The possibility that domestication might have happened where it did because of the characteristics of human societies, as opposed to those of certain plants and animal species in particular localities, is left largely unexamined. It's hard to see how ecological determinism can be used to explain the relative success, however, of ancient Greece and Rome. Are we to imagine that they achieved intensive economic growth because they had access to better types of productive crops compared to, say, the Persians or the Etruscans? There's an even more elementary problem with ecological determinism. Proximity to more fruitful crops and fertile fields might have increased output in some societies, but it did not increase output per person, nor does improved technology on its own mean higher living standards. To be sure, the Greeks and the Romans achieved all kinds of precocious technological innovation, and such advances undoubtedly increased output. But so had all those other incremental technological innovations that had happened since metal tools started to replace stone tools at the end of the Neolithic age. Better technology alone only increased output. Like having more productive crops and animals or fields, it did not necessarily raise output per person. We know that when farming technology only produced low yields, population densities remained low. We know that the productivity of the land increased in areas that were naturally fertile, such as in certain river valleys, or when the application of new technologies such as irrigation raised yields. But we know too that the higher productivity of the land did not mean an increase in living standards, it just produced more people. Environmental factors and technology alone cannot account for increases in output per person. Something else explains increases in output per person. The division of labour. Greece and Rome achieved increases in output per person because they were open to increased specialisation and exchange. The default human condition has been for the productive to be at the mercy of the parasitic. The former has long kept the latter fed. The latter ensured that only the most rudimentary division of labour was possible and that everyone remained poor as a consequence. Progress and innovation occurred in antiquity when the human habit of innovation and exchange was able to happen unhindered. 
when the hold of the parasitic was weakened. And on two peninsulas in the Mediterranean, the human propensity to specialise and exchange was allowed to kick in. Being free from parasites meant being independent, free from external extortion. But it also meant being free from internal extortion. To flourish, the productive need to live in a society that is not only independent, but one in which power is dispersed as a constraint against homegrown domestic parasites as well. At the same time, a society needs to be sufficiently open to interdependence so that it can interact and trade with the neighbours. Independent, dispersed power internally, open to exchange with outsiders. Notably, these are precisely the conditions that one finds in ancient Greece and Rome for a few fleeting centuries. And in that brief moment, these societies thrived. Hold on, you might interrupt. Far from Greece and Rome enabling the productive to escape the hold of the parasitic, aren't ancient Greece and Rome the epitome of parasitic societies? Warming to your theme, perhaps, you might point out how both Greece and Rome ran empires that conquered and extorted. Each imported millions of slave labourers. How, you might ask, can that be squared with the idea that Greece and Rome rose on the back of free exchange? It's absolutely the case that both the Greeks and the Romans were, for much of their history, extortionate powers. Under Alexander, the Greeks plundered their way across much of the known world. Rome was to become a military machine fueled by conquest and the extortion of provinces. In both societies, slavery, perhaps the ultimate parasitic behaviour, was commonplace. But before they became empires that extorted, the Greeks and the Roman republics enjoyed the conditions under which it was possible to achieve intensive economic growth. It ought to be uncontroversial to point out that Athens and other Greek states, as well as the Roman Republic, managed to escape the attentions of various external predatory powers. The Greeks heroically expelled Xerxes. Rome saw off the Latin League in the 6th century BC, the Gauls more or less in 387 BC, and Hannibal in 216 BC. And at the same time as seeing off the external predators, Athens and Rome managed to keep their internal parasites in check too. Greek city-states were not only independent from outside overlords, the different city-states were independent from each other too. Ancient Greece had no capital or unified authority. No one state, not even Athens, was able to impose itself in perpetuity over the rest. Some 1,200 different city-states existed as independent entities between 650 and 323 BC. Greeks might have been united by a Panhellenic identity and even mutual loyalty, which they showed when they joined forces as Greeks against a common Persian foe, as Herodotus tells us in his histories. But they were independent from each other. Within the Greek world, political power was fragmented amongst a mosaic of states in constant competition with each other. Power was not only dispersed among competing city-states, but within some of the most successful. To be sure, plenty of Greek city-states were run by tyrants and kings. Others were oligarchies or plutocracies. But within some, power was dispersed amongst a few oligarchies, or the people, the demos democracies. 
Of course, ancient Greek democracy was different to our own. Women and slaves had no say. The franchise as far as we know was very far from, the franchise was far from universal, as we know. But the key point is that in Athens, at the time of Pericles, power was vested in elected city officials and exercised by those that answered for their actions to a diffuse set of interests. Greek democracy might strike us as imperfect, but we need to try to look at the past without just reference to ourselves. Contrast the Greek system in the 5th and 4th centuries BC with the system of centralised monarchy in Persia, for example, where Xerxes and co. held absolute power. Rome's republican constitution was, in the eyes of the contemporary Greek exile Polybius, living in Rome during the heyday of the Republic, the perfect realisation of Aristotelian political theory. That may be so, but precisely how and why the Roman system of republican government came into being is shrouded in myth and legend. We know only the bare outlines of what happened. Having expelled her Tarquin king, Rome adopted a constitutional republican model that she was to retain for the next half millennium. The Roman Republic was from then on ruled by an oligarchy of its most prominent families, the patricians, seated in the Senate. She was to have elaborate constitutional arrangements and at times a measure of democracy designed to disperse power. From 494 BC, the common citizens, the plebs, gained a role in political affairs. From 367 BC, the tribunes had the power to veto laws made in the Senate. They were elected by the tribal assembly in which the common citizen had a majority. The Lex Hortensia, passed in 287 BC, gave the decisions of the tribal assembly the force of law. The common citizens subsequently not only had a say in politics, nor did the tribunes merely have the power to veto decisions in the Senate. From then on, they could make laws directly. Rome was administered by magistrates, elected usually for a single year. Care was taken to restrain the power of whoever held office. There were two consuls elected to ensure that no one man or faction held too much power. Rome might have been an oligarchy, but it was an open oligarchy. Seated alongside the patricians in the Senate were the equites, or knights. They were often men who had made their fortune in business and were, in effect, incorporated into the senatorial elites. Many of Rome's leading heroes and statesmen, Cato the Elder, Marcus Cicero, Catullus, the naval hero of the Punic Wars, were these so-called new men, or homines novi. Rome's institutions helped to hold power in check. An even more important constraint against the powerful, perhaps, was one of Rome's greatest innovations of all, the written law. Before 451 BC, Rome's laws had been a mixture of tribal custom and priestly command. But without writing them down for all to see, laws could be whatever the powerful wanted them to be. Half a century after expelling the last of the Tarquins, a written record of statute, the so-called Twelve Tables, was drafted. It was to form the basic law of Rome for the next 900 years. 
Written law was not just a constraint against arbitrary rule. It had the effect of secularising the law. The law in Rome after 451 BC was no longer the preserve of parasitic priests. With internal and external parasites constrained, Greece and then Rome had the essential preconditions for progress. Is there any evidence that specialisation and exchange followed? Yes, overwhelmingly so. The Greeks traded far and wide and relatively freely. They established colonies as far afield as southern Italy, Sicily, North Africa and the Black Sea. The Athenian economy in particular was based on trade. With the land around her relatively unproductive, it was only through specialisation and exchange that Athens was able to support and sustain the number of inhabitants that lived within her boundaries. Athens encouraged trade with other cities in Greece and far beyond. She imported wood from Italy and grain from Egypt. Athenian coins had been found as far afield as India. Unlike her deadly rival Sparta, who lived off her defeated neighbours, reducing them to the status of Helot, a slave farmer forced to feed Sparta, Athens encouraged trade. Athens might have had slaves too, but she was also a thriving market economy. There's some evidence that Athens possessed banks capable of conducting sophisticated transactions that allocated capital. Certainly what we know of Greek contractual law shows that the right of merchants over property was safeguarded. Athenian traders in the 4th century BC, like those of Rome later, were able to use loans to finance maritime trade and to do so with limited liability in case of shipwreck. Risk, in other words, could be correlated with a reward. There was not only an exchange of goods and services, but of ideas and technology. Athens and other city-states borrowed certain distinctive cultural features, many of which we now think of as definitively Greek. Temples, statues, epic poetry and painted ceramics from others. There's even more evidence of specialisation and exchange in the early years of the Roman Republic. New roads created a regional rather than a purely local market. Sea lanes too radiated out from Rome. Citing evidence from ancient shipwrecks, the Cambridge professor of ancient history, Keith Hopkins, argued that there was a surge in maritime trade beginning in the 4th century BC, with Rome at the centre of a Mediterranean-wide network. The volume of coins found by archaeologists and their widespread distribution, often long distances from where they were minted, gives a good indication that the economy was becoming increasingly monetized, with growing trade between different regions. The low cost of transport encouraged regional specialization early on. By the middle of the 3rd century BC, fine Roman pottery was being exported to Sicily, North Africa, Gaul, and as far west as Cadiz. Rome also traded extensively with Athens, Alexandria and Antioch. During the late Republic, a factory system in Italy was producing pottery, arms, bricks, pipes, tiles and even textiles. Significantly, they were producing for a mass market, not just individual or local consumers. There was a standardised mass-produced oil lamp and red-slip pottery. Wool weavers in small factories were selling to distant markets. Roman law allowed bottomary loans, a kind of conditional loan whereby an investor funded a sea voyage on the understanding that if successful, they were entitled to a certain share of the profits. If, on the other hand, the ship was lost, those that had invested in the scheme would only have limited liability for losses. This encouraged investment, 
Rome's constitution promoted voluntary exchange of not just capital, but also labour. Really, you might think? Weren't the Romans famous for taking slaves? Yes, they were. Even in the early days of the Republic, before the first big influx of slaves that followed the acquisition of Sicily, not everyone could sell their labour voluntarily. But alongside slavery, Rome had a free labour market. There was a mass of freehold farmers. There were a great number of proletariat, the men who owned no property but were free to work as labourers, craftsmen and artisans, paid according to what they produced. There were many independent producers in Rome, in stark contrast to the highly regimented economies of Egypt and the Eastern Mediterranean at the time. Individuals in the East were deprived of the freedom to pursue, pursue personal profit in production and trade. Subjects of a king, they were forced to labour under a crushing burden of taxation, often dragooned to work in enormous collectives where they were little more than bees in a hive. The Roman Republic was simply not like that. Far from collectivising agriculture, it had a free market in grain too. But you might think, surely Rome redistributed grain from the provinces to keep its own citizens fed. Wasn't there a massive tribute paid by the subject provinces to the ruling Romans? That was all to come. But in the early days of the Republic, the vast quantity of grain imported into Rome to feed the city was purchased from willing sellers on the open market. Roman agriculture was efficient enough to feed a city of a million, easily the largest city ever to existed until Beijing a thousand years later. That agrarian efficiency released labour to live in the towns, further increasing productivity. The late Roman Republic and the early Empire had a level of urbanisation not seen again until the 18th century. As the German scholar F. Otertel puts it, a Roman bourgeois came into being whose chief interests were economic. A productive class, in other words, who could not easily be extorted and exploited by a class of parasites, helped to keep the system of free markets going. For a few centuries, a society existed that achieved an increase in per capita output and a level of technological and cultural sophistication that was to remain unsurpassed for centuries. But as we all know, progress stalled and Rome regressed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.